I want to start with a question. What does it take to impress you? What does it take to get your attention? What does it really take to surprise you? I was visiting with our farmer this morning, and, and I'm, I'm impressed at wheat harvest. We had that this week. A farmer can take his money, bury his money in the ground. He literally buries his money in the ground. Come back a year later and harvest a crop, get food, and that food is going to provide us for the whole next year. And how God has done that. And he said, no, nah, he said, that's, he lives that every day. That's not impressive. He said, he's impressed that an airplane engineer can draw something on a piece of paper. Let's go build it. And the thing goes flies. He finds that impressive. What does it take to impress us? Well, there was a time when God was unwilling to let the world continue in its broken state. And God knew that the only solution for this broken world that we live in was himself. So God stepped onto the earth as an ordinary baby. There was nothing spectacular about his appearance. And God himself completely humbled himself and took on himself the form of a servant. He left the wonderful glory of heaven, came among us, so that Jesus is the ultimate revelation and manifestation of God's glory. Jesus is God's final sermon, and he is our only hope. And if we have been able to consider Jesus, if we've had the opportunity to know him, to read about him, we have been given grace and opportunity as God has revealed himself to us. But there was a day when the people were blessed beyond measure. And this group of people were able to see the Son of God, the Messiah, the very person that the world had been waiting thousands of years to receive. The person that Adam and Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Moses and many others had waited to see. And this person that the entire world had waited for was come. He was there at their synagogue service that day. And he opened the Holy Scriptures and read them to him. What amazing grace. And this was God's grace on display to a corrupt world. And the only way to describe it is amazing. John Newton had it right. Amazing grace. And on that day that should have impressed everybody, when God made his appearance and spoke with incredible wisdom, what happened? Did every knee of that town bow before him and confess him as Lord? Today's passage tells us what happened. Jesus is God, but the question is, do we really believe what we think we believe? And Mark 6 is important because up to this point, the author has been presenting Jesus as God, but now the author confronts us. How do we respond to him when he's presented? What do we do with him? So I'm going to call this passage, the title is, Jesus is God. Let's we'll start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us a Savior, revealing him to us, caring for us, 
as when we were lost and undone. And open your word to us and speak to us today through it in your name. Amen. So we're going to open here in Mark chapter 6, the first six verses. And I'm going to call these Rejecting God Because of Unbelief. We have the setting in verse 1 where it says, And he went out from thence and came unto his own country, and his disciples followed him. So Jesus was previously in the area of Capernaum, and he travels to Nazareth about 25 miles away, the place where he grew up and his disciples followed him. And Nazareth was a town about covering about 60 acres, and historians tell us there was a population of about 300 to 500 people, which means that everybody knew everybody. And in verse 2, It says, And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hand? I'm going to call this part, Unbelief Rejects the Obvious. Jesus had grown up in Nazareth as a carpenter which was a very average profession that day, and he had spent many years there as a common worker. But he had gone away for a while, and now he's come back, and this time he has 12 men following him everywhere he goes. And what surprised these people is that the 12 men following Jesus were not there to learn from his carpentry skills in shop class. But it was astonishing to them that they were following Jesus around like he was a rabbi, and that these students were learning from his spiritual abilities, not his carpenter abilities. They knew that Jesus had not gone to the university. He had not studied under the great religious leaders of that day. They knew that Jesus was not credentialed to be a great teacher, but they were astonished that he taught as a rabbi. And the crowd was really astonished when he taught with wisdom. And he had the ability to do mighty healing works with his hands instead of the carpentry skills that they were previously demonstrated. It's even possible that word had arrived from a previous town that he had gone into the home of a synagogue ruler and had raised his 12-year-old daughter from death to life. Who is this guy that grew up with us? And he was despised and rejected by those that thought they knew all about him. Verse 3, let's read the first 3a here. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And we see that unbelief focuses on the irrelevant. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, His mom is Mary. We know his brothers and sisters, a very ordinary family that we know. Matthew 13.55 adds another word to this. It not only says carpenter, but it says the carpenter's son. Both writings, this is the carpenter or this is the carpenter's son, are correct. But since Joseph is not named specifically, it's thought that he has died by this time. And we should pause here and take a detour on this this specific verse 
that has been the subject of much debate for many hundreds of years and even millennia. Did Jesus have half-brothers and half-sisters, siblings from the parents of Mary and Joseph, or are these other relatives like cousins? The Catholic Church makes much of this verse and takes the position that these siblings mentioned are actually cousins or kinsmen and not direct half-siblings. And the Catholic Church takes the position that Mary only mothered one child of Jesus. And they have created much debate on this topic and have made this one doctrine one of four key doctrines on about Mary. There are, New Testament uses other Greek words for cousins, and the Greek words used here are specifically for brothers and sisters, and it would take a pretty significant stretch to make the scripture say that Mary had no other children. There are several scriptures that explicitly state that Mary had other children nine times in the gospel, once in Acts and Galatians 1.9 that says James, the Lord's brother. So, and we should also point out about two of these brothers that later played a very prominent role in church history. James wrote the book of James, the Lord's brother, and became a key leader at the church in Jerusalem. And Judah, his other brother, wrote the book of Jude. Great men used of the Lord. Now back to our story about Jesus. There's a common saying that goes like this. Familiarity breeds contempt. And I see people mouthing it. Which means the longer you know somebody, the more negative things we discover about that person. And then we become preoccupied with that person's shortcomings instead of their strengths. Jesus had no shortcomings. He had never sinned in their presence at any time. He did everything well. There was nothing in him to despise. And yet, he was despised. The sick would not come to him that they could be healed. The one who could heal them was right there. They could touch him, and they rejected him. And the town folks gave the wrong answer because they had the wrong focus on their thinking towards their irrelevant. Here's the wrong thinking. We know where he's from. We know his mother. We know his siblings. He cannot be who he's claiming to be. And so they took offense. It is exactly what unbelief does with the grace that God gives. God was right there with them, and they rejected him and the truth. Let's move on to verse 3b and 4. And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And we see here that unbelief attacks the messenger. There were many needy sinners that day that heard Jesus speak, heard his wisdom, saw his work, looked at the face of God, and walked away empty-handed. I would rather keep my problems. God invites us to have life and to have it more abundantly by coming to Christ. Jesus is the door to abundant life. By him, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and destroy. 
Jesus came that we might have life and might have it more abundantly, John 10, 9. But this came to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause, John 15, 25. The town people rejected him, attacked God's messenger, and then God withheld his power as a judgment against them. The problem presented was not the lack of miracles or the authority of his doctrine and teaching. The crowd acknowledges his wisdom, and his miracles were real. Nobody was questioning the miracles. Even at that time, his enemies acknowledged. Look at what happened with Lazarus. When Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, how did the leaders respond? In John 12.10, they planned to go kill Lazarus and Jesus. In Acts 4, when Peter healed a crippled man, the leaders who had just finished crucifying Jesus said, we cannot deny that a miracle has happened. The most vicious enemies of the Lord could not deny the wisdom and mighty working that he had accomplished. And they were offended by God. So unbelief rejects the obvious. It focuses on the irrelevant. It attacks the messenger. And unbelief also rejects God's mighty work. Look at verse 5 and 6. And he could do, and he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled at their unbelief. How can God be astonished when he already knows everything? How can God surprise himself? The crowd had acknowledged his wisdom, mighty works, but rejected him. Oh, but I wouldn't be that dumb. If I was there watching Jesus do all these mighty things and listening to him and speaking all these great things, I would listen. I wouldn't reject him. We'd like to think that. But apart from God's grace, this crowd shows us exactly who we are. When we look at all the things that we need in life, is faith to believe God and our need for God's grace at the very top of our list? Is that our primary need? These people had God himself in their midst, and all they saw was the offensiveness of him. Voltaire, a wicked man, once said, God came down to lift our stricken race. He visited earth and changed it not. End quote. He claimed that Jesus did nothing to help the world. As others have said, my mind is my own church. Jesus has said something that is very instructive about violence in this world. Quote, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. John 16.1 What do we do when we are tempted to think that we know better than God? John Calvin put it this way, there is no knowing that does not begin, sorry, 
there is no knowing that does not begin with knowing God. As humans, we are created to be dependent upon the revelation of God. What was the first thing that happened when God created Adam and Eve? God talked with them and gave them truth outside of themselves in order to make sense out of life. Faith in God is the door to wisdom. Unbelief is the ultimate distortion of truth. Because of unbelief, Adam and Eve sinned. Because of unbelief, the children of Israel wanted to go back to captivity in Egypt. Because of unbelief, Jesus had to die. The crowd was in the presence of the gracious love, the humility, the sinlessness of God's personal revelation of himself in the person of Jesus. And they said, this person cannot be who he claims to be. And rather than feeling the sense of privilege that God came to them, they were offended at God's plan. And we come to this point in this war between belief and unbelief and submitting to the gospel or following our own thoughts. And it seems reasonable to say that this battle still exists in this room. Do we really believe that through the power of God, we have been given everything that we need for life and godliness? That, God, that Jesus has called us to his own glory and virtue, 2 Peter 1.3. This past week, did we live with courage and boldness and confidence and perseverance because that life is easy for us? Or because we believe the truth of the gospel that God, God has supplied us everything that we need? ready to take on that difficult task for the thousandth time because we believe God has given us everything we need for the task at hand. Or do we mumble? I can't believe I have to do this again. Why can't that person get it right? I just can't take it. I am way beyond what I should have to put up with. Do we live with hope and courage in our marriages and in our families because of the radical claims of the gospel? We have been given the deepest purpose and meaning in life through Christ, not our spouse or our children. Do we search for purpose horizontally in each other or vertically in God? Do we think that Jesus came to make our little kingdom better and to take away our problems? What is the greatest thrill that we seek? The advancement of our own ideas or the advancement of the kingdom of God? How did we respond to the pressures at work this week? As a child of God filled with the fruits of the Spirit? That we might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering, 
with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1, 10 through 14. Do we liberally give to the work of the gospel? Do our time and financial pursuits display the importance of the gospel? This is the war we're in every day. Is our life shaped by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus had labored diligently for the people of that town and experienced rejection. And he, they rejected his message. And his humanity was real humanity. And he tasted the same emotions that we taste. He is sensitive to our joys and our pains. And our Savior is going to walk that road of disappointment all the way to the cross as he humbles himself to death to pay the penalty for our unbelief so that all of our sin can be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. So why do we respond in unbelief? The problems we had this last week or the ones that we're going to come into our life this week, at home or at work or wherever we go, what keeps us responding in faith? Well, we like to think that we deserve to be treated better. If, or if I was God, that's not how I would do it. And we think our problems should be solved according to our own thoughts. In a word, we're prideful and self-righteous. Psalms warns us about a time when the Israelites left Egypt. And that they did not think that God was going to provide food for them in the wilderness. And Psalms tells us that the Lord heard and was full of wrath. And a fire was kindled against Jacob. And anger also mounted against Israel. Because they did not believe in God and they did not trust in his salvation. Psalms 78, 21 and 22. Do we believe in God and do we trust in his salvation? I'd like to end this first segment with a prayer from Richard of Chichester when he prayed. May I know thee more clearly. May I love thee more dearly and follow thee more nearly day by day. So we move on now to verses 7 through 13. And I'm going to call these responding to God in belief. And we're going to pick up here that, um, that the story picks up that as Jesus leaves Nazareth and continues to other villages in the region of the Sea of Galilee, we come to an event that we could call the practical training of the disciples. Up to this point, they had been learning. They had been the spectators and students. Now comes the time for them to put into practice what they have learned. And the trip report for verses 7 through 13 is in verse 30. There's other things that happen there. And this is really the only trip report given the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. So we pick up now in um, verse 7 through 9. 
And he called unto him the twelve, and began to send them forth two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits, and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no script, no bread, no, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals, and not put on two coats. Now I want to call this first belief learns God's truth. So Jesus gave his disciples specific command, and they were to take four things on this journey. A staff, a purse that did not have food or money in it, shoes, and one coat. Not two, just one coat. And most importantly, Jesus gave them authority and power. And hence the importance of discipleship. He sent them out two by two. And this is important because the law stated that truth is established on the evidence of two witnesses in Deuteronomy 17.6. So what is discipleship? A disciple is a learner. And Jesus often spoke that we should be learning from him. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Matthew eleven twenty nine. So think about the disciples here with Jesus. If a person asks you for help and then follows your advice and it works, the chances are that they will come back to you to solve all their problems going forward. We aren't told, but I would think this would have been a problem for the disciples. Everything that Jesus said was true and would always work. But the opposite would be true. If a person asks for you for help and your advice doesn't work, what are the chances they're going to listen to you the second time? And this is a critical step in their discipleship training that Jesus must teach them to be dependent upon God and not on himself. Let's, let's take this and uh, I'll just tell you a story. So when um, my brother and I were in our early teens, really young, our dad thought it was a good idea to spend a day helping our friend build his house. So away we went to the construction site, and my brother was given authority and responsibility over a tool on that day. And that tool was a wheelbarrow. And this was a whole new experience for him, and by the end of the day, his ability with that tool was pretty impressive. He could wheel up that wheelbarrow fully loaded right up a board and just dump the load right where it needed to go. And at the end of that day, our friend was commenting that his skill with that wheelbarrow went from nothing to great skill, and it was a good example of the learning process. Our friend started out by demonstrating the proper technique, let him try with it for a while, and then did another demonstration for it, and then he was off and doing great. As students in school, same thing happens. You take a math lesson. You learn some new skills. Then you work some math problems and figure out how to apply what you just learned. And the process repeats until we gain mastery of the material. And in the same way, we should also should look for opportunities to serve, even in humble ways, because God has chosen that which is low and despised in this world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And Jesus is doing with the same thing with his disciples. They have learned much following him, 
but now they need to incorporate that newfound truth into their living habits so in the future they can become leaders. Which leads to the second point. Belief lives God's truth. Let's read verses 10 and 11. And he said to them, In what place soever ye enter into an house, abide there till ye depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, when ye depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. You must learn to depend upon your heavenly Father for every part of this journey. When you enter a town, look for someone to provide for you. It will be their burden to provide for you. You are to concentrate on your mission. When you enter a village, if you enter into a humble home and the accommodations are pretty meager, but then the next day, the richest person in town shows up and offers you the best place in town, don't take it. You're to stay with the first hospitable person gives you an offer. If you get a better offer, don't take it. And each of us have the opportunity to give and care for God's ministers. And I'm not saying that for, for me. As elders here, we are loved so very much. But I want to challenge each of us to keep an eye open for the opportunities to serve others and to play the part of the host. Jesus in Matthew 10.41 challenged us when he spoke about this. And he says, He that receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give a drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. In Matthew 10.41 went on to say in Matthew 25:34 Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand Come ye blessed of my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for I was hungry and you gave me meat I was thirsty and you gave me drink I was a stranger and you took me in naked and ye clothed me I was sick and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came to me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungry, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave you drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came to you? And the king shall answer un and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Insomuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. What a tremendous encouragement God has given us to be generous with those in need. But the opposite is also true. Whoever will not receive you, shake off the dust from your shoes as a testimony against them. There is no such thing as indifference towards Christ. The gospel is a two-edged sword. If you receive it, the benefit's eternal life. If you reject it, you do so to your own everlasting peril. If they don't receive your teaching, shake off the dust of your feet so you don't bring the condemnation of the pagans into your home. Then 
comes, what is the scary part? It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. And there are, this is one of many times when Jesus talks of a final judgment. A couple other times in the New Testament, these two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are referenced for a very specific reason. In 2 Peter 2.6, it says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them for an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. These cities were turned into a pile of smoking ashes as an example for us. And Jude 1.7, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set for an example. Suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. These two cities are an example for what happens to people who embrace corruption. But there's an even greater judgment promised to those who reject the teaching of Jesus and his disciples than the smoking ashes that those two cities left behind. Seeing then that all these things of heaven and earth shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Second Peter 3.11 And finally, in verses 12 and 13, belief teaches God's truth. And they went out, in verse 12, and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. So the disciples went out like Abraham, not knowing where they were going, preaching the gospel. They didn't amuse the people, but effectively used the power and authority that Jesus had given them. Their preaching was specifically directed that men should repent, and their power was demonstrated in much compassion towards the people as demons were cast out and many sick people were healed. And now, it is our turn to proclaim the gospel to the people around us. God, through Christ, has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5.18 So Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of God, will of man, but of God. God has given us power to become the sons of God when we believe on his name. 
by his working and that we could be ambassadors for him, telling others of what God has done for us. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your passage and your working in our lives. Grant us that we would see you high and lifted up and be your ambassadors and not be like this town that rejected you And in essence, they tied your hands because you couldn't do many mighty works. Work in our lives that we would be your children, seeking you in all things, following you, and listening to your truth, and living it out through our lives. In Christ's name, amen.